there is no faith. There's just no doubt. Faith is the eyes that we're looking through. It's the, it's the, it's the ears that we're hearing with. It's, it's the very doubtless present awareness that allows what's happening and what's arising to arise as intimate and as necessary and as fully worthy of engaging. This, this life in this moment is not a mistake, whereas doubt is in many forms saying this, is, this shouldn't be happening, something is wrong. You know, I feel like maybe it's totally unnecessary to try to define these things. But if I have a working definition of faith and the kind of faith that we're being invited into by, by the Faith in Mind poem, it's letting go of the practice of doubt. Letting go of perpetuating the karma of doubt in its various, various forms. Adam Jogan Salzberg, sensei, began practicing Dharma in 1997. From 2003 to 2018, he lived and trained full-time at Great Vow Monastery with Jan Chosen Bay's Roshi and Hogan Bay's Roshi. Jogan is also a practitioner of Dzogchen and para-theater, as well as a DJ and drummer. He recently started Solus Luna, an integrated approach to spiritual development involving meditation, voice dialogue, and shadow work. You can find out more at solusluna.org. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of this podcast are invited to try a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. So Jogan, when I was researching your work, I came across this video of you uh, talking about the Shinshin Ming, uh, a poem that comes to us from the the third ancestor, third Chinese ancestor. And I was really struck by this line where you say, and, you know, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here, but you know, when we're engaging in our normal life, we we're engaging with the universe as if it's not trustworthy. And I was just so, it, that line hit me, you know, in a very a truthful place. And then as we were talking to, uh, you know, to get ready for this interview, you talked about, actually, you have quite an intimate relationship with this poem. And so I'm just, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about your experience with that poem, you know, what it means, but also where you came to this realization of how we you know we engage in this in this way that just feels like 
can't trust. Yeah, yeah. So in uh, a great vow where I trained, we chant that poem. Most sessions, most week-long retreats, every noon service, we have a recitable version that came to us through Rochester Zen Center. And then for many years, that would be our, our daily noon chant. So, you know, it's woven into the daily life and it starts to seep into your, your heart and your bones. And I love that because it starts to penetrate and work on you and kind of find its way to the surface with, with living insights. I also think it, it really encapsulates the Soto approach to practice in that essentially what's called shikantaza, the form of sitting meditation that we, we really celebrate is a practice of total faith, total faith. And I think what I experienced is I can't practice faith because faith is reality. But what I can practice is stop enacting my distrust. I can stop doing the distrust of body and mind, and of course, speech as well. And so what I mean by that is seeing how much I operate my mind in such a way that I'm assuming the worst is going to happen. I'm assuming I have to continually plan for the very next moment even if it's just a conversation that's upcoming or I'm walking to the refrigerator, there's this distrust of myself and my ability or the ability of the depth of me to just meet the moment. And so we do that in, in small ways, you know, through the continual planning, trying to like manicure circumstances in all the ways we do that, control and, and we do that in larger ways, you know, organize our whole lives around um, the idea that, that we're in an adversarial relationship with life. I mean, I make, I make a, a caveat is there are people who have less safety and less security and good reason to not trust, right? So, and I don't want to, you know, marginalize or deny that, but that kind of trauma and reality aside, the universe is trustworthy. It's animating us. And there's some way in which we continually interfere with that, you know, tensing the body, uh, operating the mind in such a way that um, we crowd out the space of faith and we crowd out the presence of faith and we crowd out a lot. It's... I think the faith part is, you know, when you hear the line, you know, great faith, great courage, great determination, or, you know, some version of that. I think sometimes the courage and the determination, <laughs> you know, you, maybe you think you can intellectualize what that means. And I think the faith part is maybe the hardest. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I'm just, as I'm listening to you, it just feels like that to me. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you know, faith is faith is something that is fluid, and the objects of faith change over the course of practice. You know, even in the course of a day. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think it's necessary to begin our practice with some faith that this this is going to help me, right? That this is going to change my mind for the better. That um, these people who I'm practicing with are worthy of my uh, company and my my trust in their direction and and their view of things. And so there's a whole a whole spectrum of of faith that's I think I think vital, you know. But when I I like to think about the essence of faith, which I think this poem is addressing, and the essence of faith is not faith in something. Mm-hmm. It's not an object. It's the absence of doubt. You know, it's like when we're truly in faith in the heart, there is no faith. There's just no doubt. Faith are the, is the eyes that we're looking through. It's the, it's the, it's the ears that we're hearing with. It's, it's the very doubtless present awareness that allows what to ha- what's happening and what's arising to arise as intimate and as necessary and as fully worthy of engaging this this life in this moment is not a mistake whereas doubt is in many forms saying this is this shouldn't be happening something is wrong so you know i feel like maybe it's totally unnecessary to try to define these things, <laughs> right? Right. Um, but if I have a working definition of faith and the kind of faith that's being uh, we're being invited into by by the faith in mind poem, it's letting go of the practice of doubt, letting go of the karma, letting go of perpetuating the karma of doubt in its various, various forms. That is such an interesting, to me, (laughs) such an interesting phrase, the practice of doubt, which I, of course, I don't necessarily think of me practicing doubt all day long, but yeah, that must actually be the reality of so many of us. There's almost like a rehearsal even. A rehearsal, yeah. You know, it seems for most of the people I know, their minds are habituated towards worst case scenario. Right. Habituated towards protecting the body, property, and at the core, self-image. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting to just take stock. Like when we do retreat, we get this perspective on the mind. We get this inventory of the heart that is is so precious in that scenario and so much of what the mind is doing is based on fear and doubt and we make conscious that we do that that's what i mean by it's in a way we have to get hip to how we practice distrust how we practice a belief in ourselves and life as as lacking Hmm. you know dogen zenji when describing Zazen essentially says, um, you're already within the perfection of the way, and yet the slightest gap and heaven and earth are set far apart. The slightest, what do we, is it a gesture? Is it a, is it a karma? 
the slightest action of the mind of dividing and doubting, and then we lose that truth. We lose the experience of that truth. You know, you remind me a little bit of this poem, uh, this Thich Nhat Hanh poem, where he talks about us having the greatest treasure, you know, and yet we're walking around with this begging bowl because we just don't believe it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And the thing is, is, you know, that treasure could be a broken heart. Mm. That treasure could be an ulcer. You know, that treasure can be the form of anything. So that treasure is, is the intimate presence of whatever the shape our life is in. It's not all love and light, right? Although there is that, this is nuance. There is that aspect to it. There is that that clear, spacious release from conditions that we can touch in our practice, but yet we take that further and that same clarity and presence is completely an intimate co-arising with whatever is happening. There's nothing excluded from that. Um, that, that bowl contains everything, light and dark, right? And that's, and, you know, I just want to say that's what's hard to have faith in, right? So I, one of the things I, I notice is that people love to have faith in states of mind that are clear and feeling confident and, you know, present, yeah. but to have faith that what they're going through emotionally is the Dharma, hmm, not so easy, <laughs> you know, to have faith that my, my dysfunctional personality and knee-jerk habits are an expression of the Dharma not so easy. Yeah. But the truth doesn't have parts. You know, the truth isn't like truth on one side and falsehood on the other. But it's easy for me to say these things glibly and hard to live. <laughs> I mean, hard to live. It's hard to live. But I think that's when I was looking into your teaching, there was a, a real profound. Um, appreciation of the opportunity that exists in the, you know, the vulnerability that we experience when things aren't going so well. Yeah. And again, you know, setting, making that caveat for, you know, things like abuse and like, that's not what we're talking about. Right. Um, but life isn't going the way you want it to go <laughs> or you've actually experienced some real heartache yeah maybe some grief um and that you have real you have this real kind of eye towards what the practice can do for you at that moment and how, how do you how did that develop for you was that just a personal calling what did that come through how did that appear for you the first thing that comes to mind is uh, Hogan Roshi mm -hmm. is someone who has had for many of his decades of practice, a rough time at it. You know, he wasn't somebody who, who had bliss and ease and all that stuff come easy to him. So he had a lot of heartache and a lot of difficulty 
and he digested that. And in his teaching, in his teaching of me, whenever I was going through whatever I was going through, let's say a grief was welling up, or I was seeing something about myself that was uh, ugly, hard to look at, or a breakup, or whatever was going on, he always pointed to uh, feeling that to the core and letting that disrupt the sense of fixed identity. You know, nothing interrupts the ego like, or nothing can interrupt the ego like your sense of who you are being disrupted. And the tenderness of heart that comes from especially emotional pain there's something about the, the tenderizing of the system and letting go of the defenses and the control mechanism that is what we call the self that makes it this golden opportunity. You know, the, the, the standard thing we think is my practice is going well when I feel great and I'm strong and I'm present and I'm really concentrated and I'm vital and inspired. Yes, and that can just be exactly what makes a new practitioner self ideal you know i'm doing it right mm -hmm. but when when we're in in a place of vulnerability it, it shakes up the self system and makes this particular crack you know so i can remember a time when um i was going through a breakup okay and we were in session and i was feeling this intense pain and I and he could see we were in face-to-face -face teaching he could see tears in my eyes and he said um don't cry I said why not yeah uh-huh and he <laughs> said if you cry right now you're gonna let this all release but I want you to sit and feel it to the very bottom this heartache I want you to feel this sadness and this pain right all the way through and having though, and that experience is is um, so precious. To first of all, in all humility, I would not have ever been able to do that without the help of the structure of the you know the sangha and the teacher. Right. But in the preciousness of that container, that is such a potent thing to do. You know, it's um, heartache is a gateway to something so valuable. I was, there's this other talk that you gave and, you know, we're in still in pandemic times <laughs> and who knows when we're getting out, but you know, right now we're like 10 months in or so, but the talk, this talk that you gave, or anyways, the, the date that was put on the recording sort of appeared really kind of like a month or two prior to the pandemic. And you said, um, there's no secure place. There's no safety. Human life, to l fully live it, totally vulnerable. And that's our practice. You know, we are totally vulnerable. And, you know, you were saying this sort of in response to this kind of mentality that a lot of us have where it's like can i hold it together yeah and you know <laughs> there's almost this prescient 
So in a way, like now we're 10 months into this, like, can I hold this together? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and truly, I mean, it was shown to us, the boy, there is no secure place. Like things can change. And I mean, not just a little bit. They can change in a big way. Oh, yeah. So I don't know if you remember that talk at all, or maybe this is a theme that you work with with your students. but how how are you helping you know engage students today who are you know can I hold it together in this really insecure time and you know in the United States we just went through this crazy election like it's a very insecure time mm-hmm. all over the place yeah it's really nuanced and you know yeah. what I would say would depend on the person in front of me. Mm-hmm. And of course, I have to preface this with, I'm as much a creature of comfort as anybody. Right? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> right. Uh, I love my comforts. Uh, yeah. Yep. But I know what it's like, and I think everybody knows what it's like when that's not an option. And because there will be times when that is not an option, you know, in the Dharma, we, we shift our view so we see that as an opportunity. I'm... Uh, especially when I was younger, an extremely anxious person. And what I learned is that anxiety, if you can let go of the disaster scenario that's attached to it, attached to it is this positively charged state of uncertainty. You know, what we call not knowing, at least my, my experience of not knowing, which is, you know, celebrated, at least in, in Japanese Zen, Mm-hmm. It's not some kind of dead state, but it's vibrant. Absolutely. It's, absolute, it's absolutely vibrant. And so when um, I or a student is feeling insecurity, one, one response is we find, our, we find our hara, right? We find our tanda and we learn to ground. And that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a vital skill. Because in, in this moment, in being embodied here and now, there is a kind of security. You know, I can be with this sensation. It's, it's possible even in, on the precipice of something very difficult to find a place in ourselves that is calm, right? And yet, there's something about not trying to get calm, but being with the very quality of no handrail, no ground, that is a really vibrant place. And if I can orient orient towards that or someone helps orient me towards that or I can help orient a student towards that, I really really value that. (laughs) I do, I wonder in a way if we're a little bit kindred in the sense that, you know, another talk you gave and uh, you did like a 10-day basement, no lights thing. Uh-huh. Just to see, just to see what would happen, right? Uh-huh. And it's I when I saw I'm right in the middle right now of this one. I'm calling. I do an annual darkness retreat where I just don't allow any electric lights to go on after five. Uh huh. Yeah. So I live a you know for 21 days I do it, and um, it's remark. So even though it's I have lights during the day, it's remarkable how anxious 
the evening can feel. Yeah. Because there are no lights. I can't, you know, I can't control it. And um, so, I don't know, I guess there was this, when I heard that story about you in the basement, I, um, <laughs> I sort of chuckled to myself, but I wonder if there's something that's, that draws a particular type of person to the Zen practice as well, to this don't know. You know, because it exists in the Christian tradition, they just don't really use it. It's called the the apophatic tradition. The, Do you mean the dark retreat itself? No, no. The oh. just they have a, a tradition. This, uh, so the god of the light is the cataphatic god. That's the you know all the light sunbeams and everything. But then there's the god um, at the apophatic tradition, which is the god about which you can say nothing. Mm. And it's really, it's really only exists in the Eastern tradition now. Um, I don't know what that really says about our culture, mm-hmm. uh, but for the sort of for Western Christianity, they no longer have the God of Don't Know. Mm. But you know, why have so many of us been drawn to this tradition that says Don't Know? Yeah, let it you know release. Yeah, well, I mean, perhaps we are more inundated with concepts and ideas than people have been in the past. I mean, we have Mm. so much access to so much knowledge, which is presented to us with so much authority. You know, we, most of us are in the church of scientism Mm -hmm. and we believe that we understand the objective world, uh, to a degree that we really don't. We understand it through a particular lens. And so I think there's something about um, the wonder and mystery of life that is smothered by knowing too much or adhering to a particular way of knowing. So there's a kind of renewal and there's a way in which our worlds can be reborn a little bit when we, we orient in this way of not knowing. Um, I often think of it in relationships very concretely, the how much knowing, especially in like long-term friendships or partnerships, how much knowing strangles the vitality and the beauty of a relationship, how quickly we start relating to uh, an image, an encapsulized image of somebody in our minds and stop relating to the actuality. And it's in intimate relationship that that hits home hardest for me because that can be the place of greatest joy and like meaningfulness. And yet there's the mind that knows that, that closes to further information and fresh relationship because, yep, that's the way they are. You know, they are X, Y, Z. Been there, done that, seen that. So the, the dark retreat, you know, it was, it was many things for me, but one of the things that I thought was um, great about it, besides being, hum- being humbled by how <laughs> terrified I can be when I'm perfectly yeah. safe, but in the dark by myself, yep. mm-hmm. is how it was like a kind of wiping the slate clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think we taste that, most of us, from, from even short meditation retreats. A sort of wiping the 
the dross off the mind, the shroud of, of concepts being removed even temporarily. And then the beauty of the world and the, the brightness of the world and it's in different ways can, can come forth again. I guess sort of just riffing off of what you just, you know, there's a, another place you talk about, you know, self agency getting in the way and, you know, this living with a mantra of, you know, I know, I know, I know. And how, I guess I'm wondering, you know, just bringing it back to the practice of Zen in a way, if there's some sort of hunger that we live with really to escape this culture of scientism, escape the agency, you know, the, the culture of self-agency, even though we're so drawn to it, um, that spiritually there's something that intuitively almost that we hunger for. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, yeah. Well, it seems to me in the, in the practice of Zen, at least in, in the traditions I've trained in, we are dealing with the, you know, the harnessing of agency. Right. right, gathering our will and our our life force and our attention into one, and I think of some of the koans where they some of the commentary is um, about an adept is something like um, whether holding fast or letting go, you know. So one way I hear that is we alternate between agency, you know consciously consenting to this present moment in whatever form it is, um, but gathering our attention and release of that agency. There's only so far that willpower can take us in our, in our practice. Uh, sometimes I think it, it gets us up to the precipice. It gets us up to the point at which we can fall off. <laughs> Because, you know, as as long as I'm thinking now, like in the nitty gritty of meditation, if, if we're harnessing agency and, and our efforts at concentrating are strengthening the sense of there being a meditator, well, that's a problem. Yeah. How right. do we go beyond that? In a way, it harkens back to what we were talking about, about how vulnerability helps us. You know, the heroic, strong self can really get in the way. And yet we have to gather strength. So there's this dance. Yeah. It's funny. It sort of led me, as I was listening to you, it led me in another direction where I was recently reading, uh, there's a book that uh, James Ford and Melissa Blacker put out called The uh, the Book of Moo. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> there was a line in it, and I, I'm sort of looking at it now, I can't find it. But um, <laughs> Roshi Ford, is uh, he's like, yeah, it all comes by accident. <laughs> <laughs> Like you can't plan any of it, but at the same time, we, we have to prepare ourselves for the accident. Yeah. One of the things that's that's striking to me is this accident happens to lots of people all the time in different ways Mm -hmm. who've never sat down in a Zen center. That's true. At all. Yeah. That, That mystery strikes me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> he was like I've had all these retreats <laughs> yeah. 
No, it is it is striking when you read these accounts of people who had very powerful awakening experiences. Yeah. 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 Or they know what we mean by great faith. Right. And they're they've never they have no religious inclination whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it, for me, it's important to recognize that everything that's named in the Dharma and the different things we touch and celebrate are just part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. And what I love about Zen is it is a way to consciously incline towards those experiences. But, you know, they're not our sole property. We, don't, we haven't cornered the market on, on awakening our faith or great love. Uh, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Um, I think what's important to me about that is that um, we recognize that a skillful means is a skillful means. Yeah. I, um, I remember reading this account from an Episcopalian priest who was asked if she really thought that Jesus was the way. And her response was, when I look at my child, I can say without hesitation that it's the most beautiful child in the world. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't other beautiful children or perhaps objectively more beautiful children, but that's her child, you know? And I think for me, when I think about why I engage in the practice, this opportunity for intimacy and vulnerability um, not just with another human being, but with the cosmos. Yeah. Um, you know, this is my beautiful child. Mm. Mm, I love that. Now, y- you've also started um, a way of working with other people that's distinct from your work as a Zen teacher, mm-hmm. uh, Solus Luna. Mm-hmm which incorporates sort of practices and disciplines that um, are perhaps not necessarily what we would consider within the tradition. And I'm curious where that movement came from, what's drawn you in that direction, and, and how, you, how you see helping people on the, on the spiritual journey. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first I want to I wanna bow to my teachers. Uh, chosen Hogan and Roshi for their spirit of openness and experimentation. So in a sense, they're like, they have a heart of orthodox devoted Buddhist practice. And all along the way, they've had an eye open to what else can be of service to this Bodhisattva vow? What else can we draw on? And out of the crisis at ZCLA, in the 80s, right, um, voice, yeah. voice dialogue got introduced, which is uh, a way of, of working with the self, uh, honoring that it has different parts and different voices, you know, that we contain a multitude. And they found that very helpful in understanding how people could have such a dedicated practice and seemingly be, uh, or re- in the reality, be awake in certain dimensions of their life. And then there are other parts of them that really were, they didn't understand or that leapt out of the shadows. So they brought that work into Great Vow. 
and that was especially in the earlier years very very strongly present there we would we would do that work in group settings and individual settings particularly around the inner critic because chosen roshi would say that the inner critic is one of the most prevalent and fierce obstacles to people's opening up <laughs> sure right yeah, yeah yeah and it's fair it's ubiquitous and so mm -hmm. so that that worked really helped me and i would hit points in my training where on one level i felt a lot of freedom and i felt a lot of equanimity and yet there were just these unresolved issues that just would not be meditated away you know there were parts of me that were asking for attention and didn't quite have the room to be attended to within the, the monastic setting. So I, I sought out more of that work with some uh, practitioners in Portland and just long story short, I, I found it um, vital, vital. I think that in Zen practice, as I've experienced it, we mostly emphasize um, deconstructing what we are. You know, in the openness of presence, we let it come apart and we see its components and we see that those components of who I think I am are dreamlike, spacious, and, you know, not as much substance as we thought was there. But I experience another reality in which um, I do contain many different selves. They they are as real. If anything's real, they are real. And if I don't acknowledge that, I create the shadow, right? I create, uh, I split off, I compartmentalize my being. It kind of inevitably in the training environments, we center certain ways of being. And we center certain qualities, we celebrate certain qualities, and then we feel like we have to fit into the normative. Okay, I need to be calm and generous and kind and so forth. And of course, that's virtuous and, and beautiful, but we can start to pretend or forget that there's more to us than, than that. And that's just lurking under the surface. So where's the space for that to actually um, come to the light of day and have some expression in our lives? So part of what I'm doing in, in Solus Luna is, you know, helping people with this, this essence level meditation work where we deconstruct and we touch that, that spaciousness, that transparency of being, but also honor the whole of themselves because that is another kind of nourishment. Um, I guess I want to ground it more in like, in like practical, practical details. Um, so I was just doing some work with a client who, um, there is a part of him that basically uh, has a victim mentality his whole life. And he was victimized by his religion actually, victimized by Catholicism. God victimized him because he was created imperfectly and then asked to be perfect. And so this victim part of him, he's been in identification for it for so much of his life, it's really ruled him. But that's not the whole of who he is. 
So we're beginning to open up to this part of him that really has agency and sees that there is um, lots of possibility for choice. And so the more I've done this work myself and the more I've done it with others, I really see that we are multidimensional, multifaceted beings. And I, and I want to help bring that out and have both this transparency of being and also the, the fullness, the richness of what we are and an understanding of all that we are. Is any of that making sense? <laughs> yeah. There's a great freedom that can occur in the release that we can experience in saying that there isn't one fixed identity there. Mm-hmm. And in fact, to be able to stand and kind of witness (laughs) as you sort of navigate between these, you know, we'll just say Ian, right? These Ians that are there, that I I just see an opportunity for a lot of freedom in that approach. You know, I really saw it in in um, Chosen, Roshi particularly, who's done a lot of the kind of voice dialogue training as well as, of course, lots of Zen practice, is that she could in one moment be this playful being, you know, like a child. Uh, I remember when I first moved to the monastery, it was uh, we were doing some cleanup work and I was all kind of fussy about getting into the dumpster. And she just jumped right in and playfully was like smashing the trash down like an eight-year-old with no inhibition. And then in the next moment, she was this very serious professional, you know, um, addressing somebody about how to work with the issue in the kitchen. And then the next moment, a a heart-centered person and just the fluidity of being that she embodied just really struck me as that's, that's freedom to me, not just being empty. Not just being clear, but to be able to kind of flow into different shapes, to be a shapeshifter, I think is, is one of the freedoms that calls to me and that I want to offer to people. And in some ways, it like needs to be jump-started for most of us. There's, a, there's another practice I did that really uh, inspired me this way in Dzogchen. It's a practice in Dzogchen called Ruchen which means um, separating samsara and nirvana. And in a nutshell, Rujan is a practice where you fully embody all of the six realms in their extremes. And you just step from, from a place of, of open awareness, you step in and get full bodied. I mean, full body to the point of exhaustion is actually the practice. Expression to the hell realm, the, the heavenly realms, the animal realm, the hungry ghost realm, all of it. And it's so cathartic to embody the range of being that what happens is not that you decide that you're going to be hellish or you're going to be animalistic, but that this particular kind of space opens up in you because there's room for everything, not only in yourself, but in other people. So, for example, the more I know the parts of me that are angry or lusty or petty or delighted or uh, excited, the more I know these different parts of myself, when I meet the outward expression of it in somebody else, there's much more intimacy that's possible. You know, because whatever I can't own in myself, whatever is not okay, I see it externally as bad, wrong, and not appropriate. 
and the, the, the ability to embrace the range of being, still choosing a skillful way to show up, but choosing that way, having that, having that agency. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Jogan Salzberg Sensei encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for the Zen Community of Oregon at zendust.org and his personal work at Solis Luna, that's S-O-L-I-S-L-U-N-A dot org. And I'll include links to both of those in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are invited to try a free month of training with the Online Sangha. To access your free month, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I am your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week.